We'll go on to the next question that comes from Joe. And Joe is a physicist and consciousness explorer. Now, you just mentioned in the previous question meditation. So I'll start with Joe's question on OBEs, which is out-of-body experiences and meditation. Does one need to experience and master OBEs in order to thoroughly explore NPMR? That is physical reality. While there are many approaches to meditation, there also appears to be a quite a range of approaches to out-of-body experiences. Do you have any recommendations as to the importance and approaches, for instance, the Monroe Institute or William Bullman and such? Okay, first question. Does one need to experience and master OBE in order to thoroughly explore the non-physical matter reality? Well, yes. If exploring, you know, the non-physical is what you're about, then you know what is called OBE, though it is not anything leaving the body. You know, that's a that's a misnomer. But given that uh, we know what that metaphor means, then yes, out of body um, is the way you do that. Now, out of body is a very general term. Out of body could be a really good meditation state. It could be just point consciousness. You see, it doesn't have to be the way a lot of people define out-of-body experience. Out-of-body basically means that you have no longer are um, attached to your sense perceptions. You are in point consciousness. We'd say that you're just a point of consciousness floating in the void, right? You're just consciousness. You're not really aware of all your sense data, sense perceptions. But that doesn't have to be just point consciousness. Anytime that you are with your awareness but not attached to the physical reality of sense perception, after all, the physical reality to you is just sense perception. That's how you, you know, that's that's how you define your physical reality is through your sense perception. If you had no senses, there'd be no physical reality. So when you let go of the the sense perception data, and when I say let go of it, it doesn't have to disappear entirely. It just has to be that you're not attached to it. It's just over there. You're not connected to it. You're not operating on it. You're not doing anything with it. You can be aware that it's there, but it's not active. Okay, It's in a standby mode. It's in pause mode, if you will, maybe it's the right digital metaphor. You know, you put the physical reality on pause. You're not interacting with it anymore. Okay, so that is, in a general sense, what out-of-body is. You're no longer connected to the physical world. You put the physical reality on pause, and it's just your consciousness. Now, a lot of... A lot of the out-of-body literature, of course, defines it in a very specific way. You leave your body, you come up through your, out of your body, and you look back, and there's your body in bed, and you can fly around your house and do all these various things, and that's really out-of-body. That's just one experience of being disconnected from this physical reality. And because people have done that, that becomes the definition. Oh, well, that's what out-of-body really means. It's not true. This whole concept of leaving the body is irrelevant. What's relevant is that you detach yourself from your sense data. You're no longer operative in physical reality. You are just awareness. That's being out of body. Your body is physical. Your body is the sense data. It's the platform for all your sensors. Okay. So... Given that more general concept of out-of-body, yes, you need to get there first before you're going to explore the non-physical. Now, you as consciousness, let's say you've detached yourself from the physical input, from your sense data. All right, there you are. You're just aware. You're an awareness. You're just floating there in space. You're aware that there's physical body over here. You're, you can still hear the traffic outside in the street if you, if you uh, kind of put your attention there. But as soon as you withdraw your attention from it, it disappears. Okay. Now, at that point, you can do 
you can use your intention to do whatever you like. At that point, you can say, oh, I'd like to uh, explore my house in this state. I'd like to go look at what my house looks like from this. And then you can fly around your house just like you did the other way. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to ease up out of your sleeping body to do something. That's just one way of experiencing it. That's not fundamental. My first part of the answer to this question is you have to understand that out-of-body is a more general thing than just what you'll read about in out-of-body books. Okay. Secondly, is yes, if you're going to explore consciousness, then you need to be aware in consciousness. And to be completely aware in consciousness, you have to let go of awareness of the physical reality. Otherwise, you're only experiencing your own consciousness in a very uh, um, personal way. You're not experiencing consciousness in a general way. All right. Now, um, so that's an exploration of the non-physical, which is consciousness. Remember I said a little earlier that the reality in which your avatar exists cannot be the same reality frame as the server that's computing the virtual reality of your avatar, right? The computer that creates the virtual reality, that creates the simulation, has to be in a different reality frame than the simulated virtual reality that the computer's simulating. Okay, so that's the way it is with consciousness. Consciousness then exists outside of the physical reality frame, outside of our physical universe. And that's just a, a, an elementary point of logic. It can't exist inside. See, consciousness has to be outside the physical reality. So if you're going to explore that, then your awareness needs to be outside the physical reality uh, as well. All right, now, my, a bigger question would be, is that important? How important is it to explore the non-physical reality and Consciousness. You might say non-physical reality, the reality of consciousness. But basically, that's a whole series. Uh, maybe not a series isn't the right word. It's a whole collection, a whole group of virtual realities. Your transition reality is a virtual reality. The reality that people going out of body get into is a virtual reality. These are all virtual realities within the larger consciousness system. Okay, if you're going to explore those. Um, you've got to get out of being attached to the physical. But why would you want to explore those? What's the point of exploring those? Is there any advantage to exploring those? Well, the answer is there might be or there might not be. If you are a very left-brain person, if you need logical process in order to accept things, if you need to... Um, you know, if you need to do, if you need all your experiments and your experiences have to be hands-on, if that's your personality and that's the way your mind works, then you probably need to learn to let go of physical reality and become aware in non-physical reality or within the larger consciousness system because that's how you can experience these things firsthand. That's the way the left brain logical process mind needs to work, so you probably need to go do that. On the other hand, if you're more right brain, more intuitive, you just understand the bigger picture because it's obvious to you, then you may have no need to do that. You don't have to have a logical process that takes you there because you're just already there. You get it. You understand it at a bigger level. It just makes sense to you. Then doing this out of body or um, letting your consciousness detach from the physical reality and from your avatar is really of no value to you. You don't need it. You've already gone beyond that step. You've, you've jumped past that uh, logical process. If that's okay with you and that's how your mind works, then the answer is no. There's no point in doing out-of-bodies experiences. They're just they're not going to pay off. It's... Uh, like a trip to the park. It might be fun, you know, you might find it entertaining, but you're not really going to learn a lot from it because it's not going to teach you a whole lot. 
Now, let's go back to the person who's left brain and wants to experience that. What he really wants to experience it is he wants to say, I've been there, I know that it's real, okay? This, this larger reality actually exists because I've been in it and I've proven to myself that it's real. Well, now, that is really a problem to start with because, okay, you go into another reality frame and you hear voices, you talk to people, you see things. How do you know that's real? How do you know you didn't just make that up? How do you know that isn't your imagination? Oh, well, detaching from the physical didn't actually solve that problem, did it? It just created another problem because now you don't, you, you don't know that, that when you detached from the physical, you don't know that what you got was real. Okay, now, how do we define real? Our real virtual reality is just a data stream. What we get from our imagination is just a data stream. What we see in an out-of-body state that's outside of us is another data stream. We are consciousness. We get data streams. We interpret those data streams in terms of you know, our concepts of reality. So the only way that it's really going to do you a lot of good to, to do this out-of-body and explore consciousness, if you approach it like a scientist, you do experiments there. You go certain places and get certain information, and then you have to check it against what you can get through other means, which limits you to doing your out-of-body to things that are interactive with the physical, because then you can go physically check whether what you saw, that's like remote viewing now. You've kind of reduced your out-of-body to a remote viewing experiment to where you go someplace, look and see what's there, you come back to this reality and then go find out what's really there and is what you saw what was there, you see. Now, you can do these kinds of things and convince yourself that, indeed, you did see stuff that was really there, and otherwise you'd never been there. You shouldn't know it. You can do these kinds of evidential things. So that's really the value of this out-of-body state. is isn't to just go out and wander around in the out-of-body, but to do evidential things, which is a very limited set of exploring the larger consciousness system, a very limited set. But it's that set that you have to do to convince yourself that the data stream you're getting comes from outside of you and isn't just created by your own imagination. You can also practice healing. That's another thing that's easy to do. Um, there's various... You know, there's various things. The, the, the parapsychologists and the remote viewing people have all sorts of protocols and all sorts of ways of doing this. And once you, you convince yourself that you are getting, receiving a data stream that has significance, that has meaning, okay, that has content that you can use, then you forget this, this idea, which is mostly ego, of where did it come from? What's the source? Who said that? Am I talking to myself? And you just start to say, is it useful? Did I learn anything? Am I getting anything out of this? You say, it's the ego that wants to know whether you're making a fool of yourself or not. If you, if you don't have that problem with the ego, then you judge by value. So you can go into a meditation state. You can get into point consciousness. You can do something that's totally non connected to this reality, to this virtual reality. Therefore, you could never prove where it came from because it didn't come from here, and this is the only place you've got to, to uh, check it against. You stop worrying about where was that? Was it my higher self? Was it the teachers? Was it this? Was it that? Is it the larger consciousness system? It doesn't really matter. Is it useful? Can you grow up from it? Are you just entertained by it? That becomes the pertinent question, not where did it come from? Okay, but now here you're this left brain person and you need logical process. You need to know if you're getting a data stream, you need to know who produced that data stream, why they produced that data stream, you know, where did it come from? You and all this data. That's because you've learned while you were in this physical reality that all that stuff's important. It is important in this physical reality. That's how you, you reduce the uncertainty about things. You, you vet the source 
And if the source is, is strong, then you feel like you can trust information. That doesn't work outside of here very well. You don't have the same ability to check credentials that you have here. So it's just a different thing. We tend to take our habits that we have in this physical reality, in this virtual reality, we, we take our, our experiences and the way we think and the way we act, and we want to apply it to the larger reality. So we want to go to the larger reality, and then uh, we run into somebody out there we talk to, and we want to know their name. We want to know where they work, you know, where they live, uh, what school they went to. Uh, how did they come by knowing this? Uh, how far up on the ladder of knowledge are they anyway? How evolved are they? We want all of their, uh, you know, we want their resume to check them out so that we can tell whether we should uh, uh, actually seriously consider anything they say. You see, that's putting yourself in the role of child to adult. You expect somebody to tell you whether or not you should believe the material. Oh, I got all this stuff, but it's from a, a master, high-level, you know, um, whatever. So I can really, you know, take all this. as This is the way it is because the, my source is very, very credible. See? In other words, you're asking the question, should I believe this or not? Well, it's the wrong question. Don't ask whether you should believe it or not. That's not the point. Belief isn't an issue. Whether you believe it or disbelieve, it's irrelevant. What can you do with it? How can you use it? How does it make you grow? That's relevant. And if you get that, credentials don't matter. The, uh, you know, all the rest of that stuff is irrelevant. So you have to grow up. Be the adult and decide on what's useful to you and what's not without depending on somebody or something else to provide you information of whether or not you should believe it or not believe it. Well, that's just the thing we left-brainers have to deal with because we've got this logical process that we use to get us through this physical reality, and it works pretty well here. It doesn't work that well there. So that's why if you look at the people who, who um, oh, you know, who, who uh, look, at the, look at the databases, uh, what do they channel, or they get information, they remote view, they do all these kinds of things, you'll find mostly they're intuitive people who have exercised their right brain to the point that uh, they can function very easily there. And the people who are struggling and having a hard time and can't seem to get anywhere are the left brain people that want to make the non-physical work just like the physical does in the same processes, use the same steps and the same tools. And it's a very hard way to go. Now, those left brain people, if they work hard enough at it, they can get there. They can do enough evidential data, but it takes some years to do that. Just traveling out into the larger consciousness system and having an experience isn't evidential unless there's some way you can validate that experience. So you have to keep your experiences, things that interact on the earth plane, like remote viewing, so that you can check them. So that's just a tiny thread. Then you have to start doing experiments out there. How can I change things? What can I do? What can I create out here? Does it last? What function does it have? Is my creation in this reality, uh, you know, what does it do? Is it just, it, it's data. Is the data volatile? Is it uh, saved some ways? The only way you can answer these questions is to go out there and do experiments. And if you do that, you can come to enough data that you can take a real good guess at what's going on. You'll never know anything for sure. There's always uncertainty. There's always several ways you can get to the same, the same answer. And you have to learn to uh, work with probability rather than work with absolutes. Just the nature of the, of the way it is. So I probably overkilled that one, but I thought it might be important to a lot of people who struggle with this out of body. How do we, you know, what impo how important is it? Do I need to do this? Well, yes, but take the bigger viewpoint of out of body. But no, not if you don't need it. Not if you can get there without it. The reason we're here is to grow up, is to get rid of fear. 
and going out of body doesn't help you grow up and get rid of fear, then it's not really all that important. See, if it's just entertaining, it's not important at all. If it provides you the logical sequence and the logical processing you need in order to take the next step, in other, in other words, in order to take it seriously, then you have to do it. That's a step that's, that's on your path. You might as well uh, work at it. But you don't have to follow the traditional lie down, roll out of body, you know, come up out of your bed, see the sleeping body. All of that is just one way, one set of experiences. It's not that at all. You can just as easily find a good point consciousness state in your meditation and go from there. That's the same. Or you can wake up in a dream and go from there. Or there's all kinds of ways you can detach yourself from physical reality. And once you realize that it's not this big out-of-body process you have to learn, it's just a matter of switching your focus, your attention away from the physical. Then you realize you don't need any process. You can just do it. Tenth of a second, a hundredth of a second, you can switch your focus away from this physical reality, and there you are, no longer attached here, which is out of body. And then you can do whatever it is you want. You want to heal, you want to travel, you want to talk to somebody, you want to get information, and then you have to practice getting your, your own intellect out of the way. Of course, if you're left brain, you dominated. You're dominated by your intellect. Your intellect runs your life. And trying to get your intellect out of the way is the biggest hurdle you'll have to deal with. But as long as your intellect is running the show, then you are constantly analyzing. You're constantly judging. You're constantly guessing. Is this, is this voice I'm hearing? Is this person I'm connected to? Is, is this real? Am I making this up? Uh, you're constantly doing those kinds of things, which then get in the way of you actually doing them. But left-brainers have that issue. That's why it's a very long struggle for them to, to go through this. It takes them a long time to tell that intellect to sit down, shut up, and just listen. You know, just listen. And then after you've listened for three or four months, now judge it. Is it valuable? Did it mean something to you? Did you learn something? And if the answer is no, well, either change your methodology, ask different questions, or let it go. Do something else. If the answer is yes, then go pursue it. If you think you've gained something from it, then go pursue it more and try to optimize that gain. So that's more of the way you know, to go about it. Remote viewers have protocols to try to get their intellect to sit down and shut up. In other words, they don't know where they're asked to remote view. They don't have any hints at all. There's some location in this envelope that I'm not going to let you open that's hidden from you that even I don't know as the experimenter you know, uh, that's, that's uh, giving the remote viewer the instruction. I've got an envelope here that I picked out of a thousand envelopes. I have no idea what's inside it and neither do you. Where is it? Go there and tell me what you see. Now, how can the remote viewer's intellect start analyzing that? Well, it can't. You see, the intellect doesn't have any data to analyze. It has no idea. That's why remote viewers use those kind of protocols. You wouldn't need that protocol. You could just say, hey, Joe, go take a look at so-and-so and see what's there, and the person could do it if they could get their intellect to sit down and shut up and not get in the way. But as soon as the intellect gets in there, you start guessing, you start second-guessing, you start making things up, then you throw that out because that doesn't make sense, and again, your intellect's running the show, and you get nonsense. It doesn't work. So they have these very extreme protocols just to make their intellect not have anything to operate on, and then the remote viewers can be more successful. And see, that's uh, counterproductive, I mean, counterintuitive. You think that if you've got, you know, it's a, a, a three level blind experiment, you think, wow, that really makes it hard. No, that makes it easier because you've taken the intellect of the remote viewer out of the, out of the equation by giving them nothing to work on. So you're the same way. Once you get in that point consciousness, now if you're a left brainer, 
your intellect's just in there yapping, yapping, yapping all the time and trying to analyze and judge and do all those things gets in your way, makes it difficult to do. But if you can just say, sit down, listen, don't interfere, you're in the data-taking part of this experiment, not in the analysis part. Just take the data, whatever, and take it again the next day and the next day and take it 20 times and take the data and work it to where you're not getting much in anything other than what you got. Okay, now you're done. It's time to analyze. And now the analysis is, is it useful? Is it good data? Not where did it come from? I need to know what job you have, you know, where your mother, I need, I need your pedigree, you know, who was your mother and father, where did you go to school? Um, that isn't, uh, that isn't uh, important. I need to know your name. You know, most beings, when you meet them in the non-physical and you say, what's your name? You'll notice right away they don't come back with anything. It's not like they say, oh, hi, I'm George unless they've been and done this a lot of times, then maybe they'll do that. But mostly they go, huh? Name? See, that's something we do here. They don't really have a name. You don't need a name. All you have to do is think of them. You're connected. You see, it's not like you have to look them up in a phone book. Connection is consciousness to conscience. The connection is intent-driven, not name-driven, address-driven. It's just intent-driven. So... Anyway, that's a lot about out-of-body, but I know there's a whole lot of people that are interested in the same thing. I've been trying and trying. You know, I'm this left-brain guy. I need logical process. I've been trying to go out-of-body, and it's a really hard thing to do. It is. There isn't anybody has more of a difficulty going out-of-body than left-brain people because they analyze everything, and they have a hard time removing their intellect from interpreting everything as they go rather than just taking the data. But it is worth doing if you want to explore that reality. Now, if you're just entertaining yourself, it's not worth doing. If you're trying to collect evidential data to convince you that something real is happening here, and it's not just you talking to yourself, then it's not only worth doing, it's a must. I don't know any other way to do that. If you're right-brained, you don't have to convince yourself of that. You're already, you're already home free. Okay. Go on, Donna. All right, Tom. Joe's next question is on your psi uncertainty principle. When you refer to the psi uncertainty principle, do you refer to it in the same context as in the traditional Heisenberg uncertainty principle? Are you referring to a fundamental limit to the precision with which pairs or complementary variable, variables of non-physical or physical properties of a causal event can be specified? Uh, the answer to that is no. It's not the same thing. Um, the science certainty principle isn't so much a part of the rule set, which means a, a uh, kind of a deterministic set of relationships, as it is company policy, if you will. So it's not, it's not something that has to be that way. It's something that is that way because it works better for the purpose that this virtual reality is, you know, is made for. So the Psi Uncertainty Principle says that if you are experiencing Psi effects, that you can do that as long as in the larger picture, in the larger um, virtual reality, there's some plausible deniability. There's a certain amount of uncertainty that other people can look at that and say, oh, that didn't violate any of our principles. So there needs to be a um, plausible deniability that, that the rule set has been violated. Basically, when you do things that are uh, uh, paranormal, you know, they're violations. You might, some people like to call them their hacks, hacks of the system. They're violating the way the rule set normally works. So the normally, you, you put this rock in the air and you let it go, it falls down. That's the normal thing that works. That's the way the rule set has things work. Okay, if you can levitate that rock 
so that you let it go and it just hangs there in space or floats up, okay, that's paranormal. That's beyond normal. Now, you can do things that are paranormal, but there has to be a certain amount of uncertainty that the rest of the world has that they can say, well, no, I don't think so. I think the I think the rule set didn't get hacked there. I think uh, that was just a film. I saw that on video, but you know you can make uh, toasters fly in a in a video. You, know, you can make pigs talk in a video. So on a video, you know, it's, that's there's a certain amount of uncertainty there. All right, but, uh, the truth of videos can, of paranormal things, like a a, a fellow taking a a straw and pushing it through a table or, uh, you know, starting a fire in the palm of his hand or something. You can take videos of those things, but there's a lot of plausible deniability because it's a video and anything can happen in a video. So in other words, it depends on the circumstances of um, how you're doing it, who's involved, why it's involved, you know, why it's going to work that way. Um, most of your psi experiences will be personal experiences because there you don't, you know, you have no issues of psi uncertainty. Okay, well, why should psi uncertainty be a company policy? Well, it is because it keeps the culture from learning more than they can process. It's never wise to take a student and give them more than they can actually process. If you give them more information they can process, you create problems for the student. You don't help them learn faster. You confuse them. You make them jump to beliefs that are, that are then limiting. You create problems for them. They shouldn't have any more information than, they can, than they're ready to process. Okay, so it's just that. We have a better, more effective learning lab if we impose a psi uncertainty principle and let everybody grow up the way they grow up without uh, kind of forcing them to jump ahead of spot without actually having earned, you know, to get to that spot. And now they're just confused or they don't know what to do or they take the new information and they use it badly rather than uh, grow up with it. They de-evolve with it. And we see a lot of that, well, it's all over the world, but particularly if you look around coastal Africa, you'll see cultures in which mind over matter is a given fact. That's not paranormal at all. Everybody in these cultures knows that mind can heal, mind can hurt. It can save your life, it can take your life. It can change all kinds of things. And what you have is a culture where there's some minority that intimidates or bullies others based on threat of what they can do to them with their mind. Okay. So that's not a culture in which growth, seeing the bigger picture, the larger consciousness, you know, and, and, and growing up is easy. It's a very hard culture because now that larger reality is a scary thing. It's a thing to stay away from. It's uh, not a thing to explore. It's, it's, it's the place where evil lurks, where bad things can be done. And it's, it just hasn't worked out very well. So in our culture, we don't, uh, you know, and well, it's all over actually. I mean, you can't, you can't put the horses, you know, Back in the barn after, you know, the barn door has been taken off, they won't stay. You know, once they're out, they're out. So you, once, it's, once that information is out in the culture, it's there. You can't just take it away. But you can make it more difficult for that kind of information to come out in other cultures. So that's why we have a sign certainty principle. It's not, it's not to, uh, you know, trick people or make, or make uh, psi things hard to do. It's just there to maintain the optimal effectiveness of the learning lab. And it's, it's not, uh, like you said, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and things like that. It's not part of the rule set. It's not that uh, specific.
it's very it's very general so that means that you can you can violate the rule set on your own in your own way and you and a and a small group of others can do that and you can even make videos of it because videos these days have no credibility ever since you know uh you know same with photographs you know i have no no credibility because photoshop took all the credibility out of what you see is what you you know is what was there you know that's just not true so um that's the you know that's kind of the the uh the reason we have it and and what it is and why it is people come up against all the time. I, I read a story about a guy who was very good at, at uh, getting data from the larger consciousness system. And he decided to try to pick lottery numbers. Because that would be a good thing to do if you can get data, right? Future probable data, then why not pick lottery numbers? Well, he found out that if he actually bought the ticket, you know, picked the number, bought the ticket, it never worked. He always got the wrong number. He didn't. He didn't win anything, but he could pick a number, put it in a safe. You see, and never buy a ticket, but re, but put, you know, kind of record the number and put it someplace. And then after the drawings and things were all over, he could then look at the number and get the number right most of the time. Well, that's the science certainty principle. He's not allowed to do something that would have been you know, sure, I, I, you know, I used my mind and got that number. I've done it three times in a row, you know, and now suddenly that's news all over the place. That's a really big deal. That didn't happen. So you can't do things that, one, hurt other people or take advantage of the system or somehow are low entropy kind of things. Those things are also inhibited just by nature. Uh, those things are harder to do because the system does not support it. And uh, you can't uh, push people ahead in what they can process. Okay. Donna, back to you. All right, Tom. Oliver has a question on imaginary, in quotes, friends of young children. Research in the area of child psychology has shown that about 6% of all children have an imaginary friend for several years. In psychology, this was first interpreted as a compensation mechanism for low social skills and a lack of real friends, but this turned out to be incorrect. Many children with imaginary friends actually have better social skills maybe from practicing social interactions with their imaginary friends. How do you view this phenomenon from a big picture MBT viewpoint? And are these friends only a product of the child's imagination, or are they real, non-physical beings? And also, did you have an imaginary friend when you were young? Okay, that's an interesting question, and I'll approach it um, from several different viewpoints. Because like most things in the in the real world, the real world being the, the larger consciousness system, there's a whole lot of different ways that things can happen. Things are not so terribly simplistic that there's only one way that things can work. Um, well, let me start with the very last question. Uh, you know, did I have an imaginary friend? And then we'll work, work backwards. You know, I can answer that yes and no. I had an entity that I interacted with as far back as I can remember. So I'd say um, three, four, five years old, there were entities, and, and actually it was, it was more of uh, an entity, but entities that I interacted with. I would ask questions, I would get information, I would be assured, I would uh, kind of have an idea what was going to happen next and so on with those. And yes, they were friends. I considered them friends of mine, but they weren't around my age. They were adult, and they weren't playmates. So now if an imaginary friend has to be around the same age as the, as the person and in a playmate role, no. I never had that kind of an imaginary friend. All my playmates were um, consciousnesses in other physical avatars. Okay, they were all uh, physical-bodied playmates. 
but I always had physical friends, not playmates. Um, but they were adult-like. I interacted with them like I would interact with uh, maybe a much older child or, or an adult. They were somebody that knew things and had information and answers beyond what I had. They weren't peers. Okay. Um, now, what about children who have imaginary friends? Let's assume for now that now we're talking about an imaginary friend that is a peer. It's an imaginary child that's around the same age as the child that's, that's having it, and uh, they play together. They act like children together. What's going on there? Well, several possibilities. One, it may just be their imagination. Now, when I say their imagination, we immediately have this idea that an imagination is kind of a false thing. It's not really real. See? but if it was a, a being from the larger conscious system, that wouldn't be imagination. That would be something that was real. And what are they both? The imagination and the, and the being from the larger conscious system, both of those are data streams. It's information. Consciousness itself is an information system. Okay? So it's information stream in either case. The difference is, is it self-created information stream or an information stream that's external. Well, one can change to the other. You may have a child who is bored, doesn't have anybody to play with, and imagines a friend. Children do this a whole lot. You ever seen a, a little uh, four-year-old uh, with their uh, dolls all out in a row on the bed talking to them, and uh, the dolls are obviously talking back to her in their head? or at a little tea party, or something like that. They all talk with their stuffed animals and uh, have conversations with their dolls, and the dolls will say things to them, and children play like that. Children are very imaginative. So imaginary friend, if indeed it's imaginary, would seem pretty, uh, you know, pretty ordinary. I think what happens is that if these children imagine it for just 10 minutes or 15 minutes or an hour, then nobody ever writes it down as my child had an imaginary friend. It was just, they were just playing and pretending and whatever. But if it goes on consistently for weeks and months, now it's a, an imaginary friend. So we're talking about an imaginary friend becomes an imaginary friend when it's consistent real difference there is all children have imaginary friends and imaginary interactions with all sorts of things because that's children have good imaginations. Some of them actually have consistency over months, maybe over years. Well, that to a large extent is probably due to the child's focus. Some children are a whole lot more focused than others. Some do things in certain ways. So you have a child that is consistent in their focus. Maybe their environment is consistent. They consistently don't have other children around their age to play with. You know, there's some of, something else building that consistency. So let's say it starts that way, and the child is imagining a friend, and they imagine what this friend says and what this friend does, and they say things to the friend, and the friend friend says things back, just like a little girl talking to her dolls at a tea party. Uh, on her bed. So they do that. And if you were to ask that child, is this, you know, is this uh, imaginary friend you're, you're playing with, are they real? Well, what would the child think? Sure, they're real. I mean, I'm talking to them, we're playing, we're doing this. You know, in their mind, that's real. That's real enough. They're answering, you know, we're playing, it's having a good time. You might say they're real. Um, if you say, well, do they live in this physical reality like you do, and da, 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 the child may be a little confused with that, because now you're asking to differentiate between, you know, the things they think and the things that they feel, the things that they touch. But so a part of it can be just confusion between what a psychiatrist or a psychologist, the questions they ask, and the way a child might interpret that question. Sure, they're real enough. I'm having a good time. My little dolly just said that she wanted another cookie. 
on her, you know, on her plate. So the little girl gets out the cookie and, you know, gets out the plate and then the plastic cookie and hands it to the doll. So is that real? Eh, it depends on your point of view. And if you're four years old, that's probably real enough. You don't have a big concept of real and not real. Now, let's say that there is a, a way that the larger consciousness system can use this. We have, a, we have a little child with an imagination. Can the larger consciousness system use that? Let's say this little child has an old soul. They've been around a lot. And that means they're going to grow up as far as their uh, quality of consciousness very quickly. They're going to be more aware. They're going to see big pictures. They're going to understand connectedness to other people. They won't be as self-focused as other children their age. So would a larger consciousness system maybe make a connection there and give them a, a data stream? telling them things, encouraging them ways that would help them with this growing back up to kind of reclaim their, their uh, skills and abilities and so on, up to a level that's commensurate with what they come in with? Well, sure, they would. Would a larger consciousness system see a, a, a child who was desperately lonely and didn't have anyone to, to play with and think it would, might be good for their development if they had someone to play with, someone to interact with, and therefore take that role. So now we're talking about the larger conscious system creating a data stream that goes to this child rather than the child creating the data stream and what we call imagination. If the larger consciousness system saw that the, this lonely child would grow up healthier, more confident, and uh, more able, therefore, to uh, evolve because of some interaction at that age, some um, building of self-esteem at that age, then the larger conscious system might take that on as well. In other words, the larger consciousness system will do whatever it can do to optimize our, what, our uh, potential, the, the, the uh, potential we have to grow up. How can we optimize that? How can we make it as likely as possible to succeed here? And the, the larger conscious system will do that. Probably with anyone, probably more specifically with older souls who need to kind of grow back up more quickly. When I'm talking grow, I don't mean physically grow, I mean grow spiritually, grow in their understanding more quickly. So the answer is sometimes it might just be imagination. Because that's just a different, it's another data stream. The child doesn't really understand this idea in terms of data streams. Data streams are data stream. They all seem real. Um, so it could just be the child's imagination. It's the way we say that. Or it could be the larger consciousness system playing a role because that role would have a positive benefit on that child for one reason or another. Either one could be the case. And I think it happens a lot more than the, um, what did uh, Oliver say, 6%. <coughs> Excuse me. I think it would happen a lot more than that 6%. It just probably doesn't remain consistent in many children. And it only remains very consistent in 6%. <coughs> I'm going to try and get through this, and then we'll take a little break. It probably uh, just remains consistent in that 6% enough that adults and psychologists and other people uh, remember it. So when you ask an adult later, only 6% of the adults say, oh, yes, I had an imaginary friend. But probably more like 80 or 90% of them really did have imaginary interactions, even if it was only with their dolls at a tea party. And there's not really a whole lot of difference between the two. And some of those were from the larger consciousness system. That was their origin, and some of it were made up. And I guess the bigger point is, is how useful was it? What did it do? And I agree with, uh, with Oliver's comment. The reason these children are probably more socially um, adept is because of the time they spend playing with those, with those uh, 
non-physical friends, we could call them, okay? Because they do interact socially. They, it is a, a, a very viable interaction for them, and you do learn from that interaction. And you say, well, it's not real. It's, as, it's pretty much as real as, as the physical interaction. It's a data stream. The physical interaction is a data stream. The imagination is a data stream. The larger consciousness system playing a role is a data stream. They're all data streams. We make choices based on that data, and those choices help us grow. And that's true no matter which of, you know, no matter what the cause of the data stream is, that's, uh, you know, it, it's true about all of them. So it's a very functional, a very functional thing. This idea, well, that's different, therefore it must be something wrong. You know, the child is, is uh, you know, trying to make up for deficiencies and that sort of nonsense is, is uh, we tend to make everything that isn't, that isn't what everybody else does, that's normal or odd, it's a problem because we don't like differences. We, everybody, you know, we're, we're herd animals, you know, everybody moves the same way and then we feel confident. As soon as somebody moves, uh, you know, a little differently in our herd, it's a problem. There's something wrong with them. They need to be fixed or they need to be shunted. They need to be uh, you know, ignored or taken out of the group. We fear differences. That's what, that's what fuels things like racism and that kind of stuff. We have a fundamental fear of anything that's not like us. So that's why these, these things are seen as uh, a problem. When in fact, it's just another data stream and it doesn't really matter too much what the source is, it's what does the child get from it? How, uh, you know, how is it useful or helpful? At the very least, maybe they're entertained. At, at, the, at the most, they really learn a lot. So that's kind of my take on all of that. Uh, and I don't know how many people are like me as a child that have an imaginary friend, but that friend's an adult or at least someone that's uh, not a peer, someone that's much more knowledgeable than they are. That's probably even a higher number. That's always there as a as a possibility.